We have two Bible readings to begin with this morning. The first one is from uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verses 5 through to um, 10. Chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now if we turn back to the Old Testament and to the book of Psalms, the next reading is Psalm 51, verses 1 through to 9. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. To take your Bibles again, please, if you're following along, and I would encourage you to do so, and turn again to Psalm 51. On the blue Bible, page 562. On the brown Bible, page 535. I want to pick up the reading from verse 10. Psalm 51, picking up the reading from verse 10. <clears throat> we read, Creator in me a pure or a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we thank you and praise you. Your word does not change because you, Lord, do not change. Father, we pray as we study your word today that you would teach us the things that you would have us know and apply to our lives. And we pray, Lord, you would draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray this in his precious name, for his sake. Amen. It was springtime, the time the Bible says that kings go off to war. David was at the height of his power. But instead of going with his troops to fight, he stayed in his rather comfortable home in Jerusalem for a few weeks' holiday. You can do this when you're the king. That's when he saw her, one evening as he strolled around his palace parapets. Her name was Bathsheba, and the Bible tells us that she was beautiful. The Bible also tells us she was, unfortunately, someone else's wife. Her husband Uriah the Hittite was one of David's army's officers, and she was married to him. David was a God-fearing man, a moral man, yet lust took over, and so began his downward spiral. He slept with Bathsheba and she fell pregnant. With Uriah, her husband, away with his regiment, this embarrassing scandal was going to be inevitable. What could David do? I know, he thought. I'll cover it up. His plan. First, recall Uriah from duty on some feeble excuse to ask how the war's going. Second, make sure Uriah slept at home with Bathsheba that night. Third, make sure Uriah was out in battle when the baby was born. And fourth, falsify the date on the birth certificate. And as the saying goes, Bob's your uncle, or rather David is. But Uriah refused to cooperate. He wouldn't go along with David's plan. No, he says, I'm going to sleep in the servants' quarters, he said. And David whined and dined him for three nights, but Uriah wouldn't change his mind. He was so infuriatingly noble. David finally realised this rather clumsy attempt at cover-up wasn't going to work. That's when he decided on a bolder and much more disgraceful strategy. First, instruct his commander-in-chief Joab to engineer things so Uriah would be killed in battle. Second, after a suitable funeral with full military honours, marry the grieving widow. Third, adopt her unborn son, or child, I should say, as a prince of the royal line, a very gracious gesture to the memory of a national hero like Uriah. You know, if David's first plan was clumsy, his next strategy was unscrupulous, cynical and just plain dirty tactics. But I'll tell you, it worked. Uriah did die. David married Bathsheba, took the child to be his own. And I suppose David hoped it would all end there. He'd broken at least three of the Ten Commandments, but he'd managed to keep the eleventh. You shall not be found out. You see, Joab... He and some of his staff, they knew what had happened, but they wouldn't talk. David has covered his tracks very professionally. It was an unfortunate episode, but come on, politics is a dirty business. No use crying over spilt milk. 
There are skeletons in most Royal Cups. It had happened, now it was over, time to move on and we all forget about it. Of course, this is where David made his biggest mistake. A bigger mistake than the crimes of adultery, deceit and murder which he so callously committed. You see, we can't confine sin to the past in such an easy way. Even if the courts don't penalise it, even if public scandals don't expose it, and even if we manage to carry on the hypocrisy, as David probably did, as if nothing had happened, the skeleton is still there, rotting away in the cupboard. And sooner or later, the stench will seep through the cracks and begin to choke us. You see, we can't cover up guilt, no matter how hard we try. And the only safe thing to do with guilt is to wash it away. And there's only one person in the world with a necessary spiritual detergent to get rid of such a stain. The Lord Jesus Christ, who washed away the guilt of our sin with his blood at Calvary. You know, David eventually learnt this lesson. He learned it one day when Nathan the prophet called on him and confronted him with his sin. David wrote Psalm 51 after that rather humiliating experience. And he surely writes it for us so we can share in his experience and learn from him. I've called this sermon The Sinner's Guide to Guilt Removed. Because if we're to successfully deal with guilt, there are four things that are made clear that we need to do in this psalm. Confession, cleansing, change and confidence. Let's look at them now. Confession. Verses 1 to 3. We must confess our guilt. We have to face up to our guilt. You notice in these verses that David says these words, blot out my transgressions, he says. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He uses three different words to describe what he's done and we actually call this Old Testament 101 because it's important. Transgression means rebellion. God says you shall not commit adultery, but David rebelled and disobeyed God. The word sin means to miss the mark. David didn't live up to God's standards. He failed miserably on God's commandments. And iniquity means to be twisted or crooked. When you put it all together, David has rebelled against God and missed the mark because of his crooked, twisted, inward nature. In verse 5 he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, surely from the time my mother conceived me. All of us are born with a sinful nature, which is why we're all sinners. David faced up to this. He confessed. He tried to cover it up now for almost a year. But the first thing David needed to learn was this. Before he could confront his guilt and get it out of his system, he needed to look into his heart and face up to the truth he found there. And this isn't easy. Self-examination is tough. 
Years ago, I counseled a, a married couple. And finally, the husband made this telling comment. He said, you know, I've had to face up to a very unpleasant fact. All these years, I've blamed, I've said to my wife, I don't have any problems. You do. Now I realise I'm mostly to blame. It was a life-changing moment. Not easy to face, but by facing it, the Lord helped them get their marriage back on track. You know, it can be a real shock to see ourselves as we really are. But we need to face up to our sins so we can deal with them. But it seems to me, sadly, like David, when our conscience pricks us, we tend to turn to the cosmetics covered and find something to cover it up. And one way amongst many we do this is what we call repression. And it's the most dangerous cover-up of all. Repression simply means we bury our guilt in some subconscious corner of our mind. And when this happens, the guilt festers away. And it reappears in ways not obviously related to the original sin. It might come out in physical symptoms like sickness or headaches, ulcers or general lethargy. It might show itself in psychological problems like depression, anxiety or running, one, or running oneself down. And personally, I believe David suffered from these kinds of ill effects of repressed guilt. That's why he speaks in verse 8 of the bones you have crushed. In the corresponding psalm, Psalm 32, he talks about his bones wasting away. He's got no energy. He's, there's roaring, groaning inwardly all day long. The bones you've crushed. He felt the weight of, of his sin. He felt God's hand heavy on him. Maybe he felt physically sick. I don't care how well he played his role outwardly or in public. You can't tell me he didn't suffer private emotional pain. Repressed guilt always brings. In fact, inwardly he was a mess. He's very perceptive when he says, surely you desire truth in the inmost past, wisdom in the inmost place in verse 6. If we're going to find peace of mind, that's where the work has to be done. We need to face the truth. We need to expose what's buried in these inmost places. The cover-up must go. Repression must give way to confession. We have to face up to the reality of our guilt. And for many of us, I'm telling you now, this first step is the most difficult. Then following on from that, we have our second C, which I simply called cleansing. We must come clean with God. The first part of verse 4 says this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight talking about the Lord. You see, we don't just confess our guilt. We need to deal personally with God about our guilt. And when I come to this verse, I say quite openly, some people have a problem with David right here. Um, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Surely David sinned against them. Well, of course he did. But David's expressing a truth all of us must ultimately expect. In the final analysis, we sin against God and we sin against him alone. 
In fact, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3 as part of his argument that the whole world is guilty before God. So we can't come to terms with our guilt until we deal personally with God about it. And it's really important because contrary to what many psychiatrists say to us, guilt isn't just a feeling, it is not some psychological hang-up. Guilt is something objective. Guilt is something real. Guilt is standing between my maker and me. God's a moral being. God is a holy judge. When we do things wrong, when we sin, we offend him. We're not just transgressing some man-made social conventions. We're offending God. You know, it's not even enough when the person we've sinned against forgives us. I'm not my own judge, and neither are they. I stand, you stand, accountable before God's justice. Which is why the second part of verse 4 reads, you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Against God, says David, you only have I sinned. Look, it really is so important. I've seen over the years that we understand this. Many people think they're confessing their sins and coming clean with God when all they're doing really is, is they're feeling his wounded pride. You know, I'm, I let myself down. I'm angry with myself. Or, or I should have done better. Or they think they're coming clean with God when all they're doing is feeling remorse because of what their mistakes have plunged them into. You know, I should have known I wouldn't get away with this. Look, being angry with ourselves isn't enough. We have to face it, God's angry. Being sorry for ourselves isn't enough. We've injured God. And we can only come to terms with our guilt when we realise and feel burdened by how my sin affects God. We must come clean personally with God. And this leads us to our third C, which I simply called change. We must want to change. If you're following with your Bibles, pick it up from verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And this overlaps with the last point. If we're to find a way out of our guilt, we must want to change. And David expresses this by the word hyssop. In the Old Testament, hyssop was the plant the priests used to purify a leper. And there was a prescribed ceremony for a man cleansed of leprosy where the priest could declare him clean and send him back into the community. David's confessed his guilt. He's come clean with God now like a leper who's been cleansed. David says to God, wash me, he says, and I'll be whiter than snow. He wants to change. So in verse 10 he says what? Create in me a clean, create in me a pure heart, O God because he's under no illusion how radical the surgery must be. 
And since I'm in a heart, here's a heart transplant that exceeds anything in modern heart surgery. Because if people hear God or David's asking for a miracle, he says, create, knowing only God can create. And the word for create is the word bara, the word used in Genesis chapter 1 where God created what? The heavens and the earth. He's asking for a miracle that only God can do. And heart and spirit are the words the Hebrews used for the centre of the human will and mind. David's saying, Lord, you need to totally renew me. And what's true for David is true for all of us. We don't need a minor repair job. We need a major overhaul. We don't simply need to be cleansed from isolated sinful acts. Our whole lives need cleansing from sin's powerful grip. But here's also the rub. If we're honest, often we don't want to pray, creating me a pure or a clean heart, because we don't want to change in this radical way. We might want God's help to get us out of the mess we've got ourselves into, but come on, God won't stop there. He demands far more. Give God an inch, he'll take a mile. Or the younger ones, give God a centimetre, he'll take a kilometre. You see, God's in the business of creating pure hearts, not just patching up little pieces of our lives. And that's why we shrink back. That's why we prefer our our cover-ups left to ourselves. We want to stay as we are. We don't want to be clean. We don't want a pure heart. Maybe that's why David prays in verse 12, grant me a willing spirit. Perhaps that's the prayer that we all need to pray. Because in reality, the desire to be clean is something God has to put inside us. It must come from God. And when this happens, then and only then will we want to change. David in his psalm is now in this place. God had so worked in his heart, he wanted to change, to have a pure, a clean heart. Which then brings us to our final C, that I have simply called confidence. We must have confidence in God. Pick up the reading in the psalm again from verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then go down to verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We have to believe God will accept us. When you read those verses 16 and 17, David's extraordinarily confident God is willing to forgive. Even back in verse 7, we could translate the verbs as in the future tense, you will cleanse me, you will wash me. You see, this psalm affirms David's faith as much as it's a plea for mercy. I mean, his confidence is stunning, a broken and contrite, you know, repentant, genuinely sorry for my sin heart. You will not despise. How come he's so confident? Why? Maybe the clues in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The word restore 
reminds us God was no stranger to David. And David could recall times when things had been different between them, when they had been in intimate personal communion between himself and God. He wanted that relationship restored. That's why it says in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now look, the Lord gave the Holy Spirit to David when Samuel anointed him. And David didn't want to lose the Holy Spirit's blessing and help as Saul did when he sinned. Now we know today the Holy Spirit lives in believers forever. Of course he does. Dear people, we can grieve the Spirit and we can quench the Spirit by how we act or things that we say. And guilt does this. It quenches, it grieves the Spirit. It alienates us from God. I mean, come on as Christians, we know when we're hiding some sin, when we're covering up unconfessed guilt and not walking closely with God. We might fool everybody else, but we won't fool God. David knew it, and so should we. Yet as I say, we see David's confident God won't abandon him. This is a psalm of faith. It's not a suicide note. said, Lord, all I've got is a broken and contrite heart, and I'm sure you won't despise it. Why could he say this? God knew this because he knew his God. The very first line of the psalm tells us that. Have mercy on me, O God, what? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. And that's why he could confidently say, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. You know, because of what David had done, God could justly have banished him from his presence and sent him straight to hell. Yet in the very depths of his being, you find David's faith welling up. God will accept me. He has unfailing love, steadfast love and compassion in his heart for me. Dear people, we Christians need to believe this too. We need to grab hold of it. Look, non-Christians feel guilt as well, but they haven't got a clue what to do with their guilt. Unlike David, they're not justified by faith. They're not right with God. Now, I don't know if the Lord is speaking to you through this psalm. He's certainly spoken to me. If he's speaking to you through this psalm, is he saying something like, yes, I feel guilty? You might be saying that this morning. I know that I've got to deal personally with God about this. I'd like to change. I really would. But how can I be sure if if I confess these things, God will accept me? Well, how can we be sure? We sung about it, we read about it, and John prayed about it. We have the blood of Jesus. We have the cross of Calvary. We have God's promise to us that John mentioned in his prayer, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father, put God the Son on the cross so that in his agony we might see God's unfailing love and compassion for sinners. God made him, the Bible says, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I give Jesus my sin, he gives me his righteousness. This dual transaction makes our forgiveness and salvation possible. I don't need hyssop. I've got the blood of our great high priest. Jesus shed blood is God's promise he can and will forgive the penitent, the contrite 
sinner. Let me finish with this thought. When Nathan confronted David with his sin, David's heart was on trial. He could have told Nathan to get lost. He could have become angry. He could have executed Nathan like King Herod did to John the Baptist. As we listen to David's words here, our hearts are on trial as well. Tell me, what will you do about your guilt? Will you bury it? Will you cover it up? Might you continue to live hypocritically as if there's nothing wrong? Listen and learn from David. He shows us a better way. Confess your guilt to God. Come clean with God. Desire change and be confident that God will accept you as you come to him through faith in Jesus' sacrifice for sin at Calvary. Then let the blood of the Lamb wash away your guilt. Then like David, you'll be able to say, as he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. And in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes some of these psalms are hard to read and hard to come to grips with because, Lord, they really do tell it as it is. But I thank you, Lord, for this psalm of David's. I thank you, Lord, that we are reminded about how grievous our sin is in your sight. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that it takes us straight to the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood shed for sinners. Lord, I pray for all of us here that we might know that freedom, freedom, Lord, of sins forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we face this coming week now, whatever it might bring, we will leave here confident, Lord, in every single way we are safe and secure with our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this word, we pray. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.